Let's turn again to the book of Jude. The book of Jude there right before the book of Revelation there in the New Testament. As we continue our study through this book, we are being continually reminded of God's perspective on truth and how important God sees the truth of His Word and the proclamation of the truth of His Word. And we're also seeing how severely God will judge those who stand in opposition to the truth of His Word. And this morning we come to verses 5 through 7. And here in these verses, Jude attempts to call to reminder of the church there of God's actions in the Old Testament against those who were disobedient to Him. And again, what Jude is trying to do is to paint this picture of God's desire for truth, His standing for truth, but also of God's willingness, but also His necessity to punish those who stand in opposition to Him and stand in opposition to truth. If you found your way there to verses 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Jude, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Jude writes, and he says this, Now I desire to remind you that you know all things once for all, all that the Lord, having after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own dominion but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the day, for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they went in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. You can be seated this morning. I've entitled this message, A Call to Remember. A Call to Remember, because it's what Jude opens with there in verse 5 because he's calling them to a remembrance of something. He says, I desire to remind you. It was not that they didn't know, and it was not that they were purposefully ignorant. It wasn't that they were choosing to not know. But oftentimes, as believers, and just as the believers that Jude is writing to here, we need to be reminded of the things that we have once learned and then forgotten. Now, Jude here is not attempting to build credibility as that he knows more than they do, but what he's trying to do is to rouse them to serious thinking. He wants to call them to remember the things that they once knew, but perhaps have let slipped by the wayside. Every one of us as Christians, as we go through our Christian life, we're learning each and every day that we read and study our Bible, but it's natural humanness that over time we forget some of the things that we've learned. It's why when later on, years down the road, you hear somebody say something from a certain book of the Bible, and immediately in your mind, you're like, I forgot that that was there. I forgot that that's what that said there. So Jude is calling them to this remembrance. And really what he's calling them back to is to understand of God's power and purposes in response to false teaching. I want to read this morning. There's going to be a couple of times where we're going to read some extended passages of Scripture, but I believe it's important to set the context of what Jude is teaching these believers here. And the first one comes from Deuteronomy chapter 13. If you'd like to turn there, you're welcome to, but Deuteronomy chapter 13, the first 11 verses lays out God's perspective to the children of Israel on how they are to respond when someone comes in and begins to teach things contrary to the teaching that God had given them. God is speaking, he says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder. And the sign or wonder comes true concerning which he spoke you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and he shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. 
So you shall purge the evil from among you. If your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul entice you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods whom neither you nor your fathers have known, or the gods or the peoples who are around you, near you, or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, and your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. So you shall stone him to death, because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid, and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. It seems to me that the Lord is very serious about his truth. That the Lord is very serious about his worship, that the Lord is very serious about keeping his people from apostasy. That he does not desire to see them veer off into false teaching. It's amazing how in just short, a short 11 verses here, how God encapsulates pretty much anything you could think of when it comes to false teaching. He says, the gods of those who are around you, near from you, far from you, from one end of the earth to the other. That pretty much covers it all. God is warning them that somebody might even come to them, even a close relative, a son or a daughter, the wife or your friend who is as your own soul might come to you and said, let us go and serve other gods. Brothers and sisters, the temptation still exists today. It existed in Jude's day because this is exactly what was happening inside the church that Jude was writing to. These Gnostics, these antinomians were coming in and what they had done, even though they were claiming to serve God, they had created a God of their own image. Because this is what people do when they do not like the God of the Bible. When they do not like the God that is portrayed in the scriptures, a God who is angry against sin, a God who is angry against the wicked, a God who has high expectations even a God who would punish his own son for the sake of his elect. Those people do not like those things, and so they begin to create our own God, and they say, well, my God is a God of love and not a God of punishment. Or my God is a God of grace, but not a God of justice. What they have done is basically created their own idol. They've taken what they wanted out of the Bible. They've taken what they wanted of God, and they have, in a sense, they might as well have just fashioned a wooden or a stone deity to sit upon the altar at their home because that's what they've done. They've created a false god to worship. So God is warning the people in the Old Testament, do not be deceived, do not be betrayed, do not even listen to the one who is so close to you who would come if they tell you, let us go and serve another god. God was so serious about this, that they were to be put to death. God's way of accomplishing this, to keep his people separated, to keep his people uh, as his own there in the Old Testament. He said, you shall not tolerate it. You shall not let it come to pass. And we understand that the same concept remains in the New Testament, that we are not to tolerate false teachings inside of the church. Now, under the new covenant, we're no longer called to, to put someone to death for that. But we're called with the same seriousness, with the same perspective to see how deadly and dangerous false teaching is to those who are inside of the church of Christ. But why does Jude here call them to remember this? Why does he call them back and remind them of this understanding of God's perspective on this? Because lest they themselves be carried away. They needed to be reminded of God's justice. They need to be reminded of God's perspective against false teachers. Paul would use the same type of language. Romans 15, he says, But I've written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace of God that was given to me. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, though you already know them and have been established in the truth that is present in you, I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. We need to be often reminded of God's truth. 
We need to be often reminded of what God has said in his word. And so Jude here is he's going to lay out this eloquent demonstration and example of how God has dealt with false teaching in the past. First wants to remind them of God's perspective. How highly God views his truth. How highly God views his word. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the response of a husband. If someone were saying evil things and wicked things about his spouse. There's something that would be stirred up in a man to desire to defend his wife and to stand up for her because they are one flesh. That is his wife. He loves her. He cares for her. So there's this natural response to defend her in the face of wickedness, to defend her in the face of lies. And brothers and sisters, the scripture tells us that truth is God's truth that it belongs to him. God has set a standard by which truth is to be proclaimed. God has set a standard by which he is to be believed. God has set a standard by which we are to obey him. And he sees that as so serious that he will punish those who stand in opposition. False teaching is an affront to a holy God. It is a blasphemy of his grace. When someone begins to abuse God's teachings, there's always a number of reasons why there is. There's sometimes it's, it's pride. They don't want to submit to the commands of God, so they begin to change what God's standard is. Sometimes it's selfishness or, or greed. Uh, they say they've changed the teaching of God's word in order to gain or accolades to themselves, whether it be personal or financial gain. Sometimes it's just immorality. They want to do what they want to do, and so they change God's word in order to allow themselves to pursue the desires of their own heart. But in all of those, it's a blasphemy against the truth of God's word. It's an affront to the teachings of Scripture. We often hear calls to remind ourselves of God's grace. And it's an important thing to remind ourselves of God's grace. God's grace is wonderful. The fact that His mercies are new every morning, how could we live this life without that blessed promise to know that God's mercies for us are new every morning? And to know that by God's grace, our sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. That we know that we stand in forgiveness before a just and a holy God. What a wonderful thing to remind ourselves of God's grace. But oftentimes what happens, because we've seen even in our own generation, this rise of antinomian teaching that makes an abuse of God's grace. That says, well, God's grace is merciful, so just do whatever you want to do and the grace will be there to forgive you. It's an abuse of God's grace. But just as strongly as we need to remind ourselves of God's grace, we also need to remind ourselves of God's judgment that we understand that God, yes, is showing his grace upon those whom he loves. God shows a common grace towards even those who are not his own. The rain falls upon the just and the unjust. God shows a common grace towards even those who are lost, but God shines his particular grace upon those who are his. But brothers and sisters, we need to be continually reminded that on those who are outside of God's grace, those who are outside of the family, those who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God will rain judgment down upon them. We don't remember that to, to, to mock them. We don't remember, remember that to celebrate it in the sense of, well, they're going to get what they deserve. We remember it because it is a driving component to stand for the truth of God's word. It's a driving component for us to see those who need Christ and to preach to them and declare to them the truth of God's word. And again, to stand in the opposition of false teaching. So Jude says, I desire to remind you. I desire to call to your remembrance. These things. He says that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not 
believe. That's an incredible thought. That God would save His people out of the land of Egypt and then subsequently destroy some of them. In our Scripture reading there before I got up to preach this morning, we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And there in that passage, Paul is laying out this very fact. He says that our brothers, our fathers, he says, were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they were all drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Now remember, this is the nation of Israel we're talking about. These are, these are God's chosen people. He had called them out of all the other nations as his own, not based on anything that they had done, but because he looked down and decided to have mercy and grace and to shine his light and protection and blessings and promises and mercy upon them. They were his nation. He delivered them by his own hand out of the land of Egypt. Through signs and wonders and miracles, God said, I'm going to deliver you because I've made a promise to you that I would deliver you and bring you out. And one day I'm going to send to you the promised Messiah. He brought them out of the land of Egypt. He carried all of them across to the Red Sea. And there God showed his tremendous power again by delivering them from the hand of Pharaoh as they crossed over the Red Sea. Every single one of the nation of Israel made it through the Red Sea on dry ground to the other side. Not one was lost. But as they began to be out there in the wilderness, it began to be revealed very clearly that not all of those who were in the nation of Israel, not all who had been brought out of the land of Egypt, truly desired to serve and to be obedient to God. They began to murmur. They began to complain. And Paul lays this out. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. For it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. He said, nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Brothers and sisters, think about this. Now, this was a massive group of people. There's no specific numbers, but most scholars believe that it numbered in the millions of people that came out of Egypt by the hand of God But in one day, God destroyed 23,000 of them because of their acts of immorality. And then again, because they were disobedient to God, God sent serpents into the camp who began to bite, and many of them were destroyed. But perhaps the most significant picture of the disobedience of many of the nation of Israel comes from the point when after all of this, they're coming finally to that moment that they're getting to the thing that God had said was theirs, you're going to the promised land. You're here to the promised land. They come up, but they've got to go in and see what's inside. So they send the 12 spies. And the 12 spies go in, They scope out the land, and it's just as the Lord promised, land flowing with milk and honey, the land of all the provision that they need. But there is somewhat of a problem. There's giants in the land. There's a group of people that seem to be undefeatable. And so as the 12 spies come back, they report this news to the people. And you remember... Out of all the 12 spies, there were only two, Caleb and Joshua, who said, we can do this. We can go in there. We can defeat these people. We can take this land, and we can have our promised land. But the other 10 said, no, it's impossible. There's no way we can do this. There's no way that we can go in. There's no way that we can have this. God has brought us out here just to die. There's no way that this is a possibility of happening. Now, God had brought them out of the nation of Egypt. And the reason I remind us again of that is to think about 
God's power being demonstrated there in Egypt through the plagues. The water turning to blood, the locusts, the frogs, the fire falling from heaven. All of these miraculous things that God had done. Then in the final plague there, when the death angel passed through the nation of Egypt, God said, take the blood, put it over your door, and the death angel will pass by. Think about this, that you wake up on that night as the death angel is passing through. I've often thought about this moment, to hear the cry of all of these parents all across the land of Egypt as they realize that their children have died, their firstborn has died. But inside the house of those who are of the nation of Israel, they have nothing to fear and nothing to cry about because God has protected them. But yet here in this moment, after seeing all of these wonderful things that God had done, after feeding them from the, uh, from the man, after bringing water from the rock, they say, we can't do it. There's nothing that we can do. Their sin was a sin of unbelief. Unbelief was the cause, really, of all of the nations of Israel's problems. It was rooted in a disbelief of God and His truth and His requirements and His faithfulness. They refused to be ruled by God. They refused to obey Him. They refused to believe that He was able to do what He had promised that He would do for them. God had called them out of the horror of Egypt. And He says, I'm going to give to you this promised land. This land is yours. There were no stipulations on that. He said, I'm giving it to you. And if he said he was going to give it to you, then they should know and understand that even though it appeared on the outside, humanly, that it was an impossibility because of those who inhabited the land, that because God had already made the statement, this land is yours, I'm giving it to you, that God would accomplish everything that needed to be done for them to inherit the promised land. But because of unbelief, what is unbelief? Unbelief is apostasy. You're refusing to believe the truth that God has given. You're refusing to believe the truth that God has proclaimed. And you're demonstrating that desire to not believe by unbelief. So because they refused to believe, they could not enter the promised land. The Scripture tells us in Number chapter 14, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, you have just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to the complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you, except Caleb the son of Jehuthah and Joshua the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. And God said that this punishment, this wandering in the wilderness would last for 40 years, the same number of days that they were in the land spying it out. Despite experiencing God's power, despite experiencing God's blessings, there were some among them who refused to believe God's promises. And that refusal to believe meant that they would never see the promises of God. That refusal to believe meant that instead they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years Now think about this. This was not not just the ten spies, but the entirety of the nation of Israel were going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until everyone who was 20 years and older had passed away with the exception of Caleb and Joshua. God was going to punish the entire nation by seeing all of them fall and rot in the middle of the wilderness. Why? Why? Because of apostasy, because they would not believe the truth of God's word. With all the blessings they had received, with all the promises that they had known, even though they were a part of God's chosen people, 
They did not receive the promises because they chose to not believe the truth of God's word. Now, brothers and sisters, they should not have presumed upon their position just because they were a part of the nation of Israel. Nor should we presume upon the blessings of God. There are many people who believe that just because they see God's blessings around them, or just because they're a member of a church, just because they're a member of a godly family, they assume that everything is okay. They presume upon the promises and the graces of God. But know that if you do not hold to God's truth, if you do not believe God's truth, if you are not obedient to God's truth, then in the end, judgment and punishment will await you. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, let us fear. If while a promise remains of entering any rest, if any one of you seem to come short of it, for indeed, we have good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. We should not presume upon the blessings of God. The nation of Israel should not have presumed upon the blessings of God. God gave them all of these opportunities. He laid this blessing before them, but Jude points out, he said, remember this, that the Lord brought them out of the land of Egypt, but subsequently destroyed what all of those who did not believe. So we hear the apostasy of the nation of Israel. Secondly, I want you to notice the apostasy of angels. There in verse 6, and angels, he continues, remember them as well, who did not keep their own dominion, but a man in their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. The angels. We know these angels, these created beings of God who do his work and service here upon the earth and the things that he calls them to do. We see the angels all throughout the scripture, but we also understand that there were certain angels who fell. And these are the angels to whom Jude is referring to here in this passage. They were angels, he says, who did not keep their own dominion. That word dominion means their estate. It means their beginning. They were created by God. They were in a place of, of rank and honor and preeminence. They had been created for a purpose to serve God. They were originally characterized by truth and holiness and righteousness because God had set them out to accomplish His purposes. But we know that Satan rebelled against God, and as he did, a number of the angels rebelled along with him. And some of those angels, it seems, as Jude points out to us here, not only did not keep their own dominion, it says abandon their proper abode. In their rebellion, they were exiled by God. God kicked these rebellious angels out of heaven. But just as it is when someone sins here on the earth, even though their sin falls in accordance with God's purposes and plans, and he uses those things, these angels sinned of their own doing. God did not force them to sin. God did not cause them to sin. They sinned of their own doing. And yet, because they sinned of their own doing, it can be said that they abandoned their proper abode. Even though God kicked them out of heaven, he kicked them out because of the choices that they made. So they chose to abandon those things which God had rightfully set for them. They were aware of the punishment that would rightly come. They deserted the place which was intended for them to be for a place that they were not intended to be. And we must go to a couple of other places in Scripture to understand what happened here. Now, it seems from Jude's writing here that he's actually referencing the book of First Enoch. Now, the book of First Enoch is a non-canonical book, but in that book it accounts of 200 angels who desired to leave heaven and to have immoral relationships with human women. Now, it's a non-canonical book, so we don't hold it as high as Scripture, but in the time in which Jude lived, it was often used and referenced by many of the Jewish scholars. And it seems to line up very well with what we find in Genesis chapter 6. It says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves." 
Now that phrase there in Genesis chapter 6, sons of God, is a reference to these angels who Jude is talking about did not keep their proper domain, but departed from their proper abode. It says that these sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful and took wives for themselves, whoever they choose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were all on the earth in those days and afterwards when the son of men came into the daughters of, the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Peter references this in his writings. He says, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. What happened? These angels' pride, their lust, their refusal to submit to God grew to a rebellion and then grew to an even greater wickedness as they lusted after the women on the earth, committing immoral acts resulting in an evil and odd race of creatures that were ultimately destroyed in the flood of Noah. Now, because of their wickedness, because of their refusal to obey God, because of their apostasy, God has punished them. Notice there, He has kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. A strong warning is given here. For even though they were angels, God punished them severely. And if God would so punish these angels, how much more so will He punish human beings? false teachers on this earth who tarnish His truth and His grace. God's grace is not to be trifled with. As I studied this week, it reminded me of a pastor who I once heard say this, quote, if you disagree with the Word of God, then you need to be very afraid because it's God who you have to answer to. Let me read that again. If you disagree with the Word of God, then you need to be very afraid because it's God whom you have to answer to. Now, sadly, that pastor did not heed his own words or the words of Jude here and has since apostatized himself from the faith. He no longer believes the Bible, no longer calls himself a Christian, and has walked away. This warning of the punishment of angels should cause us to be keenly aware of what we believe and that we do not find ourselves to be tempted to be abusers of grace. If God will punish the angels, God will punish us. The picture that Jude is painting is, is that if you abuse the grace of God, if you tarnish the teachings of His Word, you must expect and deserve the punishment of God for those things. Now Jude says that these angels are kept in bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. Right now they are being kept by God. They are bound by God. Their wickedness was such that He has bound them and kept them in utter darkness. Think about this, these ones, these angels, these creatures who once knew the glory of God and all of His splendor there in heaven, to see God ruling and reigning on the throne, to be serving Him and operating Him in the glory of what, however that majestic that looks. We can't even in human understanding realize what it would be like to be in the presence of Almighty God, but they did. But now all they know is utter darkness under the punishment and anger of God's wrath. But an even greater punishment awaits them on the day of judgment. They think it's bad now. They'll know an even greater punishment when Jesus comes again and the final judgment occurs. But again, why would you tell us this? Because he wants us to understand so clearly again how much God desires the purity of his truth. That it cannot be tarnished one way or the other. Brothers and sisters, let us be very careful if we begin to think that we have discovered something novel or new in the Word of God. 
We might understand something afresh for the first time. Somebody might show us something that we've never just really studied before. But if anybody ever stands up and begins to tell you, it's like, well, let me tell you what I've found that nobody else has seen in the Word of God. There are thousands of years of faithful believers who have gone before us. And if they didn't know it, if they didn't see it, then you don't either. Because God has given us the truth of His Word. The Holy Spirit who illuminates the Word of God to us does not change. He's not deciding to give something to the Christians of the 16th century and something new to the Christians of the 21st century. He's giving us the same truth, revealing us the same truth in the Word of God. So we see the apostasy of Israel. We see the apostasy of the angels. Now, finally, I want you to notice here the apostasy of the Gentiles. Look at verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. We all know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We understand, and we don't have time this morning to dig deeply into this, but there are a few things that I want us to look at. Jude points out here that the punishment of the angels was because they disobeyed God, they rejected His truth, and they did something they should not have done. They left their proper abode in heaven, came to earth, and took upon for themselves wives of human flesh. It was an immoral act. It was an evil act. It was a, an apostasy from God's truth. And he says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, he says, since in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. The sins of these angels resulted in a just punishment, but so did the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah result in a terrible but perfectly meted punishment by God. In a sense, Jude is saying that God is no respecter of persons nor of creatures who will violate the Word of God, and He will punish the wicked. Genesis chapter 13 tells us, Now the men of Sodom were ex- wickedly exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. A few chapters later, the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Now, it's interesting to me, we live in a time where, again, so clearly we see demonstrated false teachings. And these false teachings are specifically great about where it comes to God concerning the issue of homosexuality. There have been a number of videos that have passed around the Internet. I don't know where the initial one started, but basically all the videos are parroting the same false information and the same false teaching that is found, I guess, in whichever one was first. And it's basically saying that the word homosexual is never in the Bible, that was added to the Bible in the early part of the 20th century, that the sin that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for was a lack of hospitality, and that there's nowhere in the Scriptures that, that condemns this idea of homosexuality as we know it today, that it refers not to a man and a man, but refers to, in a sense, a, a, refers instead to a man and a young child. They say that the teachings that the church currently holds on homosexuality all came about within the past 100 or 150 so years. But as we study this, and we look at the Scriptures, the Scripture makes it very clear exactly what was happening in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, because in the same way they indulged in gross, that word gross means wicked, it means uh, grotesque. He says this gross immorality of how wicked it is. It's, It's something that was so opposed to God's standard and perspective, so opposed to God's intention. He says, and they went after strange flesh. Now, Genesis chapter 19 tells us about what, where this is most poignantly portrayed in Scripture, that there are these angelic beings, these 
who came into the city of Sodom, and they ended up housing at Lot's house. And once the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah heard that these two men were there at Lot's house, they came and demanded that these men come out that they may know them. Now, that word know them is in the biblical sense of the word. It means to to have sexual relations with. It was and still is a gross immorality that denies the truth of God's created natural order of one man and one woman. It was a denial of God's truth of marriage, denial of God's truth of sexual relationships. It was called strange flesh here in the Scriptures because it was improper. It was unfit for such a use and such an end. But these men of Sodom were not satisfied with just a common way of immorality, but they delved into greater immorality and departed from that which was natural to which is that which was unnatural. And we still see the same in people today. Brothers and sisters, sin always increases in its wickedness. If left unfettered, if left undealt with, sin will continue to grow into the life, grow in the life of one who is captured by it. I remember so poignantly when I was perhaps 12 or 11 or 12 years old in our youth group, we watched a video of James Dobson from Focus on the Family uh, doing an interview, I believe it was with Ted Bundy on death row. Very well-known serial killer. And he asked him, how, how do you get from what seemed to be a normal childhood to being one of the most notorious serial killers that this nation has known? He said, well, it all started with, with pornography and sexual immorality. And he said that after a while, that wasn't enough. So I had to have more. And then after a while, that wasn't enough. So I had to have more. And after a while, that wasn't enough. He said, and it continued to grow, the desire for sin, and the sin continued to grow to the point where I killed people. And I've remembered that, again, from the point I was 12 or 13 years old, because it's such a powerful picture of the destructive nature of sin. When we deny the truth that God has given to us, and we stand in blatant opposition to it, God says, do this, and we say, no, I will do exactly the opposite. God says, this is the way you should live. This is the way you should operate. This is the way things should be. And we say, no, I'll do whatever I want to do. We must understand that in the end, ultimate and total destruction awaits. And this is exactly what happened here in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. These men, this nation, these groups of people chose to live in complete opposition to the standards of God's given Understanding, because brothers and sisters, listen, we need to understand that marriage and the idea of relationships is not something that is just limited to Christians inside the church. God gave standards of morality to all people. It's called the conscience. We choose to deny it. We choose to reject it. But the same way that people knew that it was wrong, even in this time, for people to do these things is why it was described as wickedness and immorality. People still know today that those things are wrong. They choose to harden their hearts to the truth of it. I thought as I studied this week, as remembering some of the arguments that people made that the perspective that we have on homosexuality is just limited to the past hundred or so years. Because I read a lot of old guys. I read a lot of old commentators, Matthew Henry, Matthew Poole, John Gill, men who lived in the 16, 1700s. And I thought, as I read through it this week, I want you to listen to what Matthew Henry said about this passage. He said, they were guilty of abominable wickedness, not to be named or thought of, but with the most abhorrence and detestation. Matthew Henry, writing again in the 1600s, said the wickedness of what was happening there, we don't even want to think about. 
We don't even want to have to talk about. It was very clear, even in that period of time, what was happening here, what was going on. So when you hear someone say that the perspective that the church has and the high view that we hold of marriage between one man and one woman is something that has been created or instituted in the past hundred or so years, know that it is not true. That the standard that we have today is the standard that the church has had, that Christians have had, that the people of God have had since the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when God said, a man shall leave his wife and the two shall become one flesh. God was the one who established it. So this group of people, God punished. Their sin, apostasy. Denial of belief of the truth of God's word, denying the true teaching of God. And what was their punishment? Look there in verse 7. He says, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Eternal fire. There is a place of eternal punishment. Over the past 50 or so years, there have been turret trends inside the church where there uh, becomes a, a rise of teaching of annihilationism, which says that uh, those who die outside of Christ are merely punished for a little while and then finally annihilated and, and no longer exist, but they just disappear and their punishment is, has been kept and, and it's done. But the Scripture is very clear. Over and over again, we see Jesus teaching about it. We see Paul teaching about it. We see God picturing it here through the nation of Sodom and Gomorrah, that there is a place of eternal punishment where the worm is never quenched and the fire never dies, that those outside of Christ will find themselves there not escaping God, but enduring the punishment and the wrath of God for all eternity. God's raining fire down on Sodom and Gomorrah was a demonstration of the fact that God will punish sin. Barnes said, he said, it was a demonstration to the fact that God will punish sin, that this was an example of the punishment which God sometimes inflicts on sinners in this world and a type of that eternal punishment which will be inflicted in the next. Those who are outside of Christ, those who apostatize, those who teach false teachings, know that this is their end, eternal punishment from God. But there's something else interesting here in this passage because he says, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The punishment of these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah stands as a proper example of what will happen to false teachers who deny and abuse truth. It's interesting that all throughout the Scripture, all through the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, whatever a writer needed to point to a reminder or an instance of God's judgment, it was most often Sodom and Gomorrah that he pointed to. He said, remember what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember what God did there. Those who had refused to submit themselves to God, those who taught falsely, were punished. As we draw to an end today, I want you to be reminded of these things. That here, Jude calls us to remember. He calls us to remember that truth belongs to God. He calls us to remember that God, not only does truth belong to Him, but God has a supreme expectation of how his truth is to go forth. And it is to go forth without being changed, without being added to, without being taken away from. Jude also calls us to remember that God will destroy false teachers. That those whom they're going to see around them Because there would probably be a temptation as they see this. Well, what is God going to do? Because sometimes God does not act in the moment. Sometimes God acts in the after moment. It was Anne of Austria who said this, God does not pay at the end of every day, but at the end he pays. Sometimes we don't see it in the immediate moment. But Jude's calling them and reminding them. He's like, brothers and sisters, as you see these false teachers... 
They may not get what they deserve in the moment, but bear to the fact that God will ultimately give them what they deserve for their sin. So God calls us to, Jude calls us to remember the truth of God is to be protected above all, that God will destroy false teachers. But there's also, brothers and sisters, this call here to remind ourselves to stand for truth, but also to make sure that we are not carried away. I shared with you that story in my message about this pastor. This pastor was a man who was well-known. He was an eloquent speaker. He traveled in all the different circles, even in the reform circles. I heard him speak at many different conferences. He was gifted. He was talented. He knew the Bible. But unfortunately, he didn't know the God of the Bible. He knew the truth, but he didn't hold the truth to the same standard that God holds the truth. And we must also be careful that we don't allow ourselves to be carried off into something. That we remind ourselves of how highly God holds his truth. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you. Lord, help us. In the face of false teaching, where we, we are not unlike any other generation, we understand that. If false teaching existed in the time of Jude, we should not be surprised when it exists today. But Lord, we also share the same, Lord, the same burden and, and the same perplexity of soul that I'm sure that the church did in Jude's day, where we see the false teaching around us. And Father, sometimes it seems to grow and to swell to the point where it seems that it's overwhelming that it has such a stranglehold on our culture and on our nation that it seems that there is no hope for the truth to prevail. But Lord, we know that your word has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, that it will not prevail against your truth. And Lord, we also know that even though in the moment we don't see what you're doing, that you will see to it that all of those who stand in opposition to your truth, all of those who preach a false gospel, all of those who lead others astray will get their just reward. Whether they see it in this life or the one to come. So Father, help us to not be overwhelmed by what we see happening around us but to do what Jude called us to in the opening verses of this book, to contend earnestly for the truth. Lord, help us to stand, help us to know your truth, and Father, to have the same desire for the purity of your word that you do. This morning, we've had a call to remember. And in this remembrance, Father, we have seen how seriously you take truth. How seriously you stand against those who would deceive and teach falsely about who you are. Father, embolden us with the same courage to stand for truth. We pray, Father, that we may honor you in all that we do to see your hand at work in our lives and the lives of this church and the lives of this community. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.